0: Hello, my name is Kori and welcome back to the Mongol Empire podcast. I hope everyone has been keeping well. This is episode 3.6 of The Rise of Temujin, where we finally find ourselves on solid ground date-wise. The last episode finished in the year 1196, where Temujin had been restored to the leadership of his group of Mongols. He had defeated a breakaway group of Tatars who had rebelled against the Jin, and as a reward had been granted the title Jaod Kuri. Togrel also found himself restored to the leadership of the Kureyid, and the recipient of the title On Khan, meaning king. We discuss whether this restoration was part of a wider Jin conspiracy to have a more reliable steppe ally, with Temujin being the real power behind the Kureyid throne, thanks to a decade of working for the Jinn. If you want to hear more about this, you can either listen to episode 3.5 again, or head over to mongolempirepodcast.com for a transcript of the section. But I want to begin today's episode by revisiting this idea, to look in more detail as to why the Jinn would want to ally the Kuraid. As always, one of the limiting factors of this study is the number of sources and analysis available to non-Chinese readers. Western studies are fairly limited in their scope, and predominantly focus on the economic or political choices being made during the period, which means that we really lack things such as biographies of influential people, so once more it is a case of needing to glean information out of secondary sources. The Emperor, crowned in 1189, was Chang Zong, and his reign seems to have been fairly neglected by scholars. The general consensus seems to be that he was a competent leader, but suffers from comparisons to the previous Emperor, his grandfather, Shizong, whose reign is considered to be the Qin Golden Age. To be fair to Chang Zong, the 1190s was an era of unprecedented natural disaster in northern China and the first half of his reign was spent trying to mitigate it. There were at least 25 disasters recorded by the Qin Shi between 1190 and 1196. This included torrential rain which damaged crops, drought, famine, plagues of locusts, two earthquakes, and several major floods, including a major course change for the Huanghe, or the Yellow River. All of these events required aid to be administered by the state, which usually came in the form of tax relief and grain. In addition to these natural disasters, there was an increase in a number of raids being carried out on the northern frontier by the Mongol, Tatar, Ungarad and Salju tribes. After a number of victories against these tribes, the military affairs commissioner Xiang recommended the construction of a moat and rampart system in Inner Mongolia, which would deter future incursions. Previous plans had been rejected due to the cost and impact on local inhabitants. However, Yanxiang successfully argued that the defences would strengthen the frontier and reduce overall military expenditure because they could be manned by a smaller garrison. He was made supervisor over the works and completed it in 50 days, which led to the expansion of the project. Whilst the djinn may have felt more secure behind these walls, in practice they had limited effect on the marauding tribes, and the financial strains on the administration caused by ongoing disasters likely meant that it was necessary to find alternative ways to weaken the nomads. Although primarily based on the frontier, Siang appears to have been a highly influential figure in the Jin court, which gave him a comparatively broad mandate to work with. His primary concern must have been the Tartar tribe. Despite their disunity, they were a serious threat to the Jin, and proven themselves to be an unreliable ally. Fortunately, the rebellious action taken by the group that were defeated by Temujin gave the opportunity to explore other options. The change in policy to support the Kureyid would have had to have been approved by the Emperor, but by offering Togaril and Temujin titles he ensured that there was a degree of loyalty from the pair, and it was probably backed by financial support. It seems unlikely though that the Jin cared whether the Kureyid were successfully restored to power. Instead, it was probably hoped that the pair would first of all be a distracting influence on the Tatar and secondly that the inevitable inter-tribal conflict would weaken all of the tribes in the region. In the meantime, the Jin could focus on national recovery. And it seems that the change in policy was initially successful. Temujin and Toghrul's return to Mongolia coincides with a period of increasingly destructive inter-tribal warfare. So 1196 was the first of many busy years for Temujin. In addition to defeating the Tartar and asserting his dominance over some of the Borjigin family, he also set about restoring Toghril to power. If you remember a couple of episodes back, Togril, or Ong Khan as we shall also now refer to him, had been reduced to poverty after an alliance between his brother Erkakara and Aman had successfully pushed him off the step his restoration was undoubtedly one of the key conditions of receiving the support of the Jin. After all, there was no point in the Jurchen switching their allegiance to a tribe who are unable to defend themselves, let alone weaken the Tatar. Temujin started this process by bringing the rest of the Kureyid back under On Khan's control, and is said to have provided the Kureyid Khan with men and money from his own tribe. It seems likely, though, that the Kareed tribe of 1196 was a very different beast from that of a decade previous, and had probably fractured in much of the same way the Mongol people had after 1162. We know that a number of influential clans had separated from the main body of the tribe. For example, Ong Khan's brother Jakagambu was leading a Tonkayit in the frontier region. And it's probable that other clans followed Urk or had splintered off due to the lack of a strong central power. As a result, the balance of power in central Mongolia had shifted. Whilst the Kharayad were still the most powerful faction, this position relied on the support of other groups, such as the Neyman. The status quo of the 12th century had been broken. Having re-established Ong Khan's military presence, The next stage was to restore his reputation. In 1197, the pair launched an attack on the Merkit tribe, defeating their leader Togtoga Beki. Instead of sharing the spoils, as it might have been expected, Temujin gave everything to Onkarn, ensuring that he could reward his new followers. At this point, I think it's safe to say that Temujin was happy to play the long game. With Jakagambu not wanting to beat khan? Temujin was positioning himself as the successor to Onkhan, and Togrel was getting on a bit, so it made sense for Temujin to strengthen the Kureyid as much as possible. But despite his age, Onkhan wasn't ready to be anyone's puppet. He may have been submissive and reserved when reduced to nothing, but now with a title and a taste of power, he quickly tried to throw off the shackles of control imposed by Temujin. In 1198, he launched an unplanned attack on the Merket, reinforcing the defeat inflicted upon them the previous year. But instead of being satisfied with the plunder, he pushed on, chasing them to the lowlands of Barguzan, not far from Lake Baikal. There, Onkhan captured and killed the eldest son of Togtoga Beki, and took two other sons and two daughters prisoner. He offered nothing to his ally. This may not have been as big a problem as it first seems. Both Temujin and Togrel had long-standing grievances with the Merkit, Onkhan since his capture by them as a seven-year-old. The joint attack in 1197 was really more of a raid, with the main aim to obtain the wealth that would empower Onkhan, and the Kureyid Khan only played a minor role in the operation. He could quite easily justify the attack the following year, as legitimate retribution for the insults he suffered as a child. It just had the added bonus of swelling the numbers of his career as he incorporated the captured murkit tribesmen. I must state at this point that I am following the chronology presented by Rashid al-Din, rather than the vague one provided by The Secret History. The events we are about to cover occur in both sources, but in the secret history, they occur after Temujin defeats the Coalition of 1201. In 1199, the pair went to war against the Naiman, most likely to reclaim more of the Karaid tribe, but also in retribution for their role in evicting Togril from the steppe. Much like the Quraid, the Naiman had recently undergone a transformation of their own. The man who had deposed Togaril was a leader named Inanch Khan, he is described by Rashid al-Din as a mighty ruler who held a place of great importance among the Uyghur and many tribes. As a bit of an afterthought, he goes on to say that Inanch Khan was born of a tree. But whether that means he was strong and stable, or just a slow grower, who knows. But much like the Koread Khan, he ruled over a united and powerful Nayman tribe. When he died... Probably not long after Togrul's expulsion, the tribe was divided between his two sons, Tayang and Buyaruk, and they did not get along. Rashid al-Din states that their animosity stemmed from a disagreement over who received a concubine loved by their father, and the rift led to officers and clans picking sides and then open warfare. The brothers' refusal to cooperate or support each other at all would effectively enable Temujin to pick the Nayman apart piece by piece. In 1199, there seems to have been a fragile peace between the pair. Early in the year, Temujin and Ong Khan attacked Buyaruk. Moving swiftly, they surprised the Nayman Khan and forced him to retreat through the Altai Mountains. They soon overtook him and according to the secret history, destroyed the Nayman army. As Temujin and Togrel returned to their own lands, they were intercepted by one of Buyuruk Khan's generals. As it was getting dark, it was agreed that the fight would take place the following day, so all three armies settled down to camp. That night, Ong Khan ordered his soldiers to light fires where they'd halted. Then he moved out his army up the Kara Segul under the cover of darkness. Jamuga rode off with Ong Khan that night, and Jamuga said to Ong Khan as they rode, My Ander, Temujin, must secretly be sending messages to the Naaman. He's no longer behind us. My Khan, my Khan, I am the sparrow who is always with you. Ander Temujin is a lark who flies south when it's cold, and north when it's warm. He's deserted you to join the Naaman. He stayed behind to become a subject of the Naiman Khan. End quote. This quote from the Secret History is slightly at odds with Rashid al Din, who merely states that Onkhan lit the fires and abandoned Temujin. There is no mention of Jamuga, and this really is the point that we see the Secret History's Jamuga morph from the human rival of Temujin into a demon like figure who plagues and corrupts everyone he comes in contact with. In this instance, it seems highly unlikely that Jamuga had returned to be a vassal of Togril. If Terujin was really in control of the Kureyid, then there is no way that Jamuga would have willingly submitted to him, especially after the way the former Ander had ruptured. Instead, the reintroduction of Jamuga into the narrative seems like a literary device designed to maintain the reputation of Onkhan, when the reality was that Togril had decided that he no longer needed to work with Temujin and abandoned his ally using deception. Togril, though, had grossly overestimated his position. His strength and the position of the Kareid had waned significantly, so much so, that when the Nayman were given a choice to fight either Onkan or Temujin, they went after the Kareid and easily defeated Togaril, captured a brother, and took away a large number of his people and possessions. The Kareid Khan returned to Temujin, begging and pleading with him once again to restore everything. Quote, The Nayman have taken my people away, my wives and my sons, I ask that my son send me his four greatest heroes. Let them save my people for me. Despite the betrayal, Temujin responded to the request positively. After all, it was still in his interest to support and restore the Khreid. He assembled his army and sent Borgachu, Mukali, Boragul, and Chilagun to fight on behalf of Onkhan. These four heroes came across and defeated the Nayman just as it was about to capture Togrul's son, Sengum. On Khan was once more restored to power. The defeat of Buryug Khan's Nayman provided exactly the outcome that Jin foreign policy was looking for. The Temujin Onkhan Alliance had helped to weaken or break up three of the five big Mongolian tribes. The Tatar were disunited. The Merkit had suffered two heavy defeats in two years. And now the Naiman, already weakened by internal factions, had had half of the tribes smashed in battle. If we add in the fact that the Mongol and Kureyid tribes were probably still largely fragmented, then it seems likely that the pressure on the northern frontier had been alleviated. And things were about to get even better for the Jin. In response to the growing threat posed by Temujin, a coalition of tribes formed against him. As far as Wanyan Xiang and the Jurchen were concerned, this was exactly the result they had hoped for when they moved their support from to the Tartar to Temujin and The step was self-policing, allowing the Jurchen to focus on internal issues. The impending police action against Temujin involved different groups depending on which source you read. Rashid al-Din states that the Ikiras, Korolas, Durban, Tatar, Katakin and Seljit tribes came together, whereas the secret history points the finger at the Durban, Nayman, Oyerad, Merkit and Taichigud. The leader of this coalition is unanimously agreed on. It was, of course, Jamuga and he had been elected as the Gurkhan. Once more, it seems that Rashid al-Din's account is the more likely combination of tribes. The groups he names were Mongol clans rather than tribes, and the Durban, Katakin, and Seljit had an alliance with the Tata, which drew them in. Of the tribes mentioned by the secret history, it seems likely that the Taiji good were with Jamuga. After all, they had taken refuge with the Jadaran prior to the battle at Dalanbalzut. Otherwise, it seems unlikely that either the Nayman or Merkit would have been in a position to fight again, and the relative strength of both tribes means that I can't imagine either submitting to an independent Gurkhan. The only question remains over the presence of the Oirad. According to Rashid al-Din, the Oirad or Oirat had started off opposing Temujin but ended up submitting willingly to him and there were marriages between the families of the Oirad leader and Temujin's family. The vagueness of this statement though and the honours that were later conferred on the tribe may indicate that this coalition was perhaps one of the few times that they opposed the Mongol leader so it's entirely possible that the Oirad were here. Ultimately though this coalition was not the step encompassing alliance put forward by the secret history, but rather the attempt by one powerful Mongol leader to curtail the strength of a rival who shared the ambition of uniting the Mongol people. So in 1201, Jamuga and Temujin faced off for the first time as Khans. Once more forewarned, Temujin was able to mobilise the Koread to support him. Onkan joined up with his ally, and the pair moved to attack the coalition. As they travelled down the Kerluran River, Temujin sent out a vanguard led by Ultan, Kuchar, and Daratai, supported by Jakagambu and Onkan's son, Sengum. Sentries were placed on the high ground in the area to watch for Jamuga's army. When it was sighted, the leaders of the two armies met up to assess each other's strength. The questioning took so long that it started to get dark, so it was agreed that battle would take place the following day. At dawn, the armies were drawn up, with Jamuga's army supported by two powerful shamans. Quote, The great shamans began to conjure a storm of darkness. They began to raise winds and darkness in order to blind us. When suddenly the storm turned, Instead of striking our army, their storm blinded their own men. Their soldiers fell into ravines on the mountainside, unable to see, crying, Heaven's turned against us! And their army dispersed. As Jamuga's army crumbled in the face of powerful natural forces, he turned on his allies and plundered the clans who had elected him Khan. Then he took the Jadaran off to the Erguna River in eastern Mongolia. The Taichigud abandoned their Gurkhan and took off down the Onan River. Sensing an opportunity to utterly defeat the coalition, Onkhan set off after Jamuga, while Temujin went looking to settle a debt owed to the Taichigud. However, in doing so, it almost cost him his life. Reaching his camp on the Onon, the Taiichi good leader, Aguchu the Brave, who was the son of Temujin's enemy Tagutai Kiriltug, formed up his army and prepared for a final stand against the Mongol Khan. Compared to other battles, there seems to have been little forethought on Temujin's part about strategy. We can only assume that he believed the retreat indicated that the Gud were broken and in disarray. As a result, the Mongol army ploughed into the reorganised Taiijigud and a chaotic battle ensued. Both sides suffered considerable casualties and the fighting went on until darkness fell. At this point, the secret history tells us that both armies pitched their tents where they fought and slept intermingled with each other. Whilst the two sides had been battering each other into exhaustion, Temujin was left fighting for his life. Early in the battle, he had been hit in the neck by an arrow and was unable to stop the bleeding. With his strength quickly ebbing, he had fallen from his horse and been unable to extricate himself from the battlefield. That could have been the end. He would have just been another leader who had failed to unite the tribes, an obscure footnote in the Jinshi. Fortunately, one person had seen him fall. Gelmei rushed to the side of his Khan, watched over him and sucked the blood from the wound. Around midnight the bleeding had stopped and Temujin regained consciousness, asking for something to drink. With nothing nearby to slake the Khan's thirst, Jelme took off all the clothes he was wearing, and then went to search the remains of the Taichi good camp. He returned to Temujin with a mixture of curds and water, which he administered to his patient. Quote, As he sat up, dawn was breaking. He looked around him, and saw the mire of blood where Jelme had spit the blood from his wound. What's this? Chengis asked him. Why couldn't you spit the blood further away? Jelmay answered, "'You were badly wounded, and I was afraid to leave your side for a second. "'I swallowed as much blood as I could, and spit the rest on the ground. "'You were bleeding many hours. How much blood can a man swallow?' Chingis asked him, "'While I was lying there bleeding, "'why did you take off your clothes and run to the enemy camp? "'If they captured you, would you have said I was wounded?' And Jelmei replied, I had a plan. I took off my clothes so that if they captured me, I'd say to them, I've decided to join you. But when my own people realised I was deserting, they said, Let's kill him, and stripped off my clothes. Thinking I was telling the truth, they'd give me new clothes and a horse. As soon as I got the horse, I'd surprise them by riding right back. So because I knew I had to find something to quench your thirst, in the blink of an eye, I went off and came back to you. End quote. Jelme's actions and loyalty greatly moved the Khan. Temujin recalled Jelme's support when the family had been attacked by the Merkit decades previously, and then made a vow to generously reward him for saving his life on three occasions. As the light across the battlefield increased, the Mongols could see that they had won the battle. The Taichigud had fled during the night, leaving the injured and the families of those who wanted to join Temujin. That evening, a proper camp was organised, and the following day, Temujin received the offers of service from those who had defected from the Taichigud. This included Sorkan Shira, the man who had freed Temujin from captivity as a teenager. When asked why he had taken so long to join the Mongol Khan, Sorkan provided a well-reasoned response. Quote, I often thought about the situation I was in, and said to myself, don't be too quick. If I go off to join Temujin, the good will kill all my family, make them blow away like the ashes of an abandoned fire. They'll take my wife and my sons, everything I leave behind. So I was patient, and now that The right moments here, we've come to join our Khan. The concerns that Sorkanshira had resonated with Temujin, who had spent most of his life trying to protect his own family. There was one last item to clear up, though. Just as the two armies began to charge one another at Koyatan, someone shot an arrow at me from up on the ridge. Who was it who was able to fire an arrow from up on the mountain that pierced the spine of my white-mouthed warhorse? End quote. To the shock of everyone present, a man stepped forward, apparently happy to take responsibility for injuring the Khan. He said, quote, I shot the arrow. If you kill me right here, I'll fertilise a bit of dirt the size of your hand. But if the Khan will allow me to live... I'll ride out in his service and cut the deepest waters in two, split the brightest diamond. Just let him give me the order to attack, and I'll charge with a force that will smash black stone to pieces, End quote. although it had almost cost the Mongol Khan his life, the man had proven his value to Temujin, and he responded positively, quote, Usually, a man whose force against us is the last to admit it. He'll lie about what he's done or simply hide out of fear. But this man doesn't deny that he's fought us. In fact, he declares it. Here's a man who will tell you straight what he's done. And here's a man that I'll have in my army. They say his name is Jergogadai. But I'll give him a new one. I'll name him Jebe, the weapon. And you'll ride by my side. End quote. Typically, Rashid al-Din's version of events throws some doubt on Jebe's origin story. He states that Jebe joined Temujin from the Taichi Gud only after having wandered around the wilderness for an indeterminate period of time, and there is no mention of his shooting prowess. I think we'll stick with the Secret Histories version in this case, for the simple reason that it makes for a good story. Much like many of the people who have joined Temujin up to this point, Jebe will also go on to become an important leader in the army. Having heard from everyone who wanted to defect from the Taichigud, Temujin ordered the execution of the captured Taichigud leaders, their sons and grandsons, and for his tribe to prepare to move to the winter camp. And we will rejoin the Mongol Khan in 1202 when he attempts to take a firmer grip over the Kureyad tribe. As always, check out MongolEmpirePodcast.com to find a list of the sources used in this and all of the previous episodes, along with family trees and a map of the five main tribes on the Mongolian steppe. If you want to give me feedback, correct any glaring errors, or just say hi. You can contact me by email, at that's c-o-r-e-y, at mongolempirepodcast.com, or on Twitter, at mongolempirepod. Otherwise, until the next episode, take care of yourselves, and thanks for listening.